we begin this morning uh, with the final message in Heaven and Nature Sing, let's pray together and ask that God uh, speaks to us through his word and by his spirit and leads us in this time. Father, we're grateful, Lord, for, we're grateful for this body that you have given us. Lord, not this physical body, but this spiritual body of brothers and sisters in Christ that you've allowed us, Lord, to, to journey with, to commune with, to fellowship with, Lord, to share the, the joys as well as the disappointments of life, Lord, to pray with, to encourage, to edify, but Lord, to also grow with, Lord, to learn with, to experience you with. And Father, I pray now that as a body, as the body of Christ, as a, a a group of brothers and sisters of believers. Lord, that you speak to us by your word. Lord, expand for us the very things that were spoken into scripture. Lord, may it grow root in our soul and grow and bear fruit and change and alter us, Lord, to be holy and righteous as you, God, are holy and righteous. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the indwelling of your word by your spirit. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. We are in the midst of, actually, this is the, the final message in, uh, in the heaven and nature seeing series because next Sunday we're going to celebrate we're going to be celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ but in the heaven and nature sing series was about looking at music or hymn or songs that were originated in scripture I mean to help us to to recognize that the Christmas carol or the Christmas hymn or the Christmas song is not something that we just came up with in Western American Christianity or or Christology, it was a song, a hymn, a word of praise that has been given to us from the very beginning, from the original time that Jesus was, that, that people were celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And songs always seem to, songs seem to have various um, meanings, and they have various lengths. As we discussed already before, we discussed Mary's song. It was this long poetic praise for, um, for considering her blessed and bearing the Son of God, but also for lifting up the poor and oppressed, and for making them known, and for, for saving them. And then we read about the, the song of Zechariah last week, where we discussed his, his praise as well, coming out of a, a time where he was, uh, he was in disbelief for a season, and then the time where he became uh, aware and had faith and believed what God had told him, and, and then welled up with this word and this, this, uh, this song of praise. And both of these were pretty lengthy, were pretty lengthy poems, pretty lengthy songs. Then there's one song that comes up in Scripture not too far from Zechariah's song that's actually extremely short. And you know, the length of a song doesn't always, is not always the tell of the value of the song. Uh, would you guys agree? 
I mean, some of, how many grew up um, kind of in the, the rock anthem era of the 70s and 80s, where, you know, if you could have like a 9 or a 10 minute or 11, there you go, yeah, the progressive stuff that was like, you know, just went on and on and on forever. Actually, you know, the um, length of a song, I always felt like the songs that were longer were because it took people just longer to say what they wanted to say. You know, the short ones, the short ones, those were the poetic ones that could say everything that they needed to say in a short amount of time. Don McLean uh, held the record for the longest, uh, for the longest reign at number one for the longest length of song with American Pie, uh, yeah, with American Pie. Eight minutes and 42 seconds. It was on the number one Billboard Top 100 for four weeks, and the length of that song was the longest song number one forever. Until last year which it was upended by, how, any Swifties out there? No Swifties, no Taylor Swifties? Okay, Taylor Swift actually up at, man, I'm disappointed. I figured that somebody would. Oh, there you go, George. I, I knew it. I knew it. Taylor Swift upended Don McLean after 49 years with a 10 minute and 13 second song that made and, and debuted at number one. But the shortest song to ever be number one, does anybody know what that is? And it's still, it's actually when it was, when it was, when it debuted, it debuted at number one, it stayed there for a week, and it has been since 1960, the shortest song to ever be number one. It was Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs with their song, Stay. You've seen, I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands who's seen Dirty Dancing, okay, because I'll have to ask you to come up here to repent. <laughs> but if you've seen Dirty Dancing then you've heard the word, the, the song stay. Stay just a little bit longer. So a minute, a minute and 37 seconds, and it was at number one. A minute and 30. And you know, there's other songs too that I feel like could be shorter, like Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. It could go like 10 seconds, and I'd be perfectly fine. I mean, oh, come on. I'm surely we don't have any Beatles fans in here. You know, sometimes I believe that people can say everything that they need to say in a song, lift up a praise in a very, in a very short, condensed song, a short, condensed hymn. And, and that, ex that, that exact thing happened with the angels. And you would expect that if there was a song that could have been expanded upon for days, for months, for weeks, for years, it would have been the song that came from the mouths of the angels, the very beings that spent their existence in the presence of a holy God. But that was not the case. We're going to pick up our nativity story in Luke chapter 2. And just as the kids did so well in kind of continuing and, and telling us the story, we saw a portion of this narrative when the kids were up here. The, the shepherds, as soon as Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the shepherds were, were gathered in the fields, and they were watching over their sheep, and all of a sudden an angel appeared to the shepherds, and, they, and, they, and, and an angel gave the shepherds this proclamation, this, this glorifying message that the Savior of the world was born. And the scripture says that when the, when the angel appeared, the glory of God, the glory of God shone all around them. 
Now, in our picture, in our probably in, in the in the way that we see this this image, maybe in cinema or even in our mind, we think about the the angel kind of being ahead of the shepherds, kind of being out in front of them. There's this one um, this one particular path or tangent that the that the that the shepherds see this angel. But the scripture says that the glory of the Lord shone all around. They were engulfed on all sides by the glory of God. And as the angel made this proclamation, the angel was joined then by a multitude, a multitude of the heavenly host, a multitude of angels. Now, how many is a multitude? Well, the truth is we really don't know. The scripture doesn't say, it doesn't number it. I would assume it doesn't number it because it was a number that could not be figured. I'm imagining an, an uncountable number of angels that joined this messenger, this herald angel, and they lifted up as a choir, and for a church that no longer has a choir, if, if choirs give you, give you, you know, um, anxiety, know that this was a choir of angels. And they lifted up in one voice, and Luke chapter two, if I could turn this on, Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. There was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Now, depending on your translation, it may say, uh, and peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Glory to God in the highest of heavens and peace on earth to people he favors. Now it seems to me that heavenly hosts would have had a much longer, more robust song to have sing in the midst of this glorious time. But they felt that they could pack everything that they needed to say into these two lines. And these two lines have been repeated over and over again, even in our own Christmas carols. O little town of Bethlehem, hark the herald angels sing. They all have these portions of this hymn, this carol that these angels sang that evening. So let's take a look really quick at what the angels actually said in the midst of what I would consider probably one of the shortest songs in history. If they were to record it, it probably would have been one, maybe two seconds. The first line, they say, glory to God in the highest heaven. So you have this choir of angels, these otherworldly supernatural beings of the most powerful servants and messengers and warriors of God. And the first thing they say is, this thing that's happened, this Jesus who has born, he is the glory of God. This event, this event is the glory of God. You see, God has most perfectly and completely glorified himself in this event of giving himself to his creation. To the incarnation of his son Jesus Christ, he placed himself in the midst of the creation that he created for the sole purpose of restoring it. 
You see, what God did in Jesus was the most perfect means of glorifying himself that he could have ever done. Because what he did is he, he took himself, he embodied himself in human form, he placed himself in all of his power, all of his righteousness, all of his holiness, all of his glory, and he packaged it up into this one small little package of an infant, of a human infant. And it was born that night and placed into creation, not just for 33 some odd years, but what began that night and would reign and last forever. And the angel said, glory to God in the highest heavens. This one event, this one thing that God has done has perfected his glory more than anything else he has ever done. In the highest of heavens, in the, in the, the highest place in that God's space, God is glorified. The apostle John proclaimed in John chapter one, he said that the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, Jesus' glory, the reflection of God's glory, the glory as the one and the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to pause just a moment on this particular word, word. John uses a particular um, Greek word for this word, word, in his first chapter. And this particular word that he uses is logos. You've heard that word before? Logos is not the only Greek word that's used in scripture for the word, word. There's also another word that's used called rhema. You heard of rhema? John uses this word, Logos, because there was an expectation that God had spoken in the beginning. God had spoken this word. Now, we think about words as in language, as in kind of um, the, the, the very syllables that come out of our mouth. But think of this Logos as a word that is complete, kind of this manifesto, this, this compilation, this um, this essay or paper, if you will, if you were a student, uh, if you were a student in college, this complete composition. God spoke this word that was complete, that was whole, that was true, and that was good. And it was completely encompassed in this word that God spoke as he opened up his mouth. And he said that complete compilation the beauty of that composition in its whole entirety came to be in Jesus Christ in the flesh. God had taken everything that he had spoke into existence and encapsulated that into the God-man Jesus Christ. And he says, and that's, that's glorifying to me. And the angels recognized it as well. And they said, glory to God in the highest. Look what he has done. The first thing that we like to think about at Christmas is like, what has he done for us? God looks at Jesus and look what I did for me. 
because we know that everything Jesus, everything that God does and has done was to glorify his name and to make his name known. Paul exclaims in Colossians chapter one, verse 19, that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All of his fullness. God's completeness, his complete holiness, his complete righteousness. As the scriptures say, full of grace and truth. Whose grace and truth? God the Father's grace and truth. In all of its completeness was found in Jesus Christ. And this is why when we read words where God not only allows his angels to proclaim these words of praise, glory to God in the highest. He even says them himself. If we fast forward a little bit into scripture and into the story of Jesus' life, when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter three, God says, as Jesus is coming out of the water, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, our first thought is God's pleased with Jesus because he's a, good, he's a good son. He's obedient. He's done what I asked him to do. But that's not why God was pleased with Jesus. God was pleased with Jesus because Jesus was the perfection of God. Holy and absolutely representing God the Father in the flesh. I have glorified myself, God says, in my son because I have placed everything that I am in him and I have placed him amongst my creation to restore it and resurrect it. And because of him, my name will be known, God says. Glory to God in the highest of heaven. And not only was Jesus this perfect image of God but going back to that expectation of Jesus being that logos word in the flesh Jesus takes the word that he was in the flesh and continues the work of the word continues the work of God through his existence first as a human being and then next, as the glorified Son of God in heaven, living forever through his obedience and his holiness. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that the Son of God is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. And he contains, or excuse me, he sustains all things by his powerful word. When we see that pronoun his, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus's word. So he's taking this word that he has embodied, this logos word, and then he continues to speak, kind of expound on the truth of that word, first of all as his existence as a human being and then eternally as his existence in the Holy Spirit that he's given each one of us. The word that the writer of Hebrews uses there is that rhema word. 
Think about it like this. Like the Logos word that God spoke into existence that Jesus embodied in the flesh was the perfect, holistic, mighty, righteous composition. And this rhema word was almost as if it was Jesus's expounding or his commentary, his, his explanation of that complete composition of the word. It's almost like when we pick up our Bibles, we have the fullness of God's word in biblical canon. But if you go and look at my library in my office, there are about 75 volumes of commentary to expound on those 66 books of the Bible. So Jesus continuing to sustain all the things by the word that he is interpreting from this composition of God's spoken creation. He's sustaining all things. He's sustaining all things by his powerful word, by expounding on the truth of God. You see, these aren't new words that Jesus spoke in his time on earth. And these aren't new words and new revelations that he speaks to us by his Holy Spirit. They're an explanation of that, of that one giant compilation, composition of the word of God. He continues to give us various understandings of who God is, what God wants, what he says in every particular situation. John chapter 3, verse 34 and 35 says that God sent him, Jesus, and he speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Glory to God in the highest of heavens. God has seen fit to encapsulate himself in Jesus Christ and allow him the opportunity and the authority to expound on the perfect word of God for that generation that he existed then in the flesh and for every generation thereafter in the spirit. Everything that Jesus spoke was an expression of God in expanded form. That's just line one. In line two, the angels say, and peace on earth to the people he favors. You see, it wasn't just enough for the angels to say that God is glorified in heaven. They also wanted to make sure that we understood that God is glorified on earth as well. Because when we look at these words, and peace on earth for those he favors, we have to ask ourselves, well, whose peace are they speaking of? Well, if it's God's glory, then the peace also has to be God's. And it's God that is raining down his peace on earth and all of humanity. And this peace that when we think about it, and when we read this, often at times at Christmas, we like to think about, well, Christmas time, everything is kind of this, this hope that there will be calmness in the world, that there'll be quietness in the world, 
There was a hope, I think, at one point that even uh, thinking over in Eastern Europe, the war between Ukraine and Russia, that there would be a, um, a, a ceasefire, a time where they would lay down their arms and there would be no killing, there would be no shooting or anything for this, for this Christmas Day period. That's an earthly peace. It pains me to say that that's not the peace of God. That's the peace we expect as humans, but that is not the peace that God is talking about. That's not the peace that he is giving to those and that the angels are speaking of. In fact, Jesus himself explains what that peace is like. He says, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, I am going to leave you peace. My peace Jesus says, and as we go back to that original first line, if he is the full encapsulation of God the Father, then Jesus' peace is God's peace. He says, my peace I give to you, but listen, I don't give to you as the world gives. So your heart must not be troubled or fearful. And we sing this song like silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. That, that's not what Jesus had in mind. What Jesus had in mind was it was his peace synonymous with God's peace that wasn't necessarily going to be the absence of war and conflict, wasn't necessarily going to be the absence of trials and turmoil and affliction and sickness and illness and frustration in this life. No, instead, God's peace on earth was that the conflict the spiritual conflict now between the sinful spirit of the human being and the Holy Spirit of God was once and forever resolved. There is now no more spiritual conflict. There is now peace that rests eternally, spiritually. The consequences of sin and separation of God would be abolished in Jesus. God says, I am glorified because I have encapsulated all that I am in Jesus. And through him, I am going to bring peace. I am going to bring the, the resolution of spiritual conflict in him. Again, we revisit Paul's explanation in Colossians, where he said that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. And through him, verse 20, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, there was an expectation that that peace was going to come through this Messiah, through this son that God had given creation. And the angels were singing, belting out this praise. God is glorified because all is going to be made right and peaceful. Everything is going to be reconciled according to Paul and the angels in heaven, in the highest of heavens, and on earth for mankind. But that peace, they don't end there. That peace, they say in the very last words of their hymn, are for those who he favors. 
who are those that God favors? God's glorifying in himself through Christ, through the incarnation of himself. He's bringing a spiritual peace to the world, to all he favors, the angels say. Those that God favors are the ones who will receive that peace, who will proclaim it in their own lives, who will receive it, who will believe it, who will have faith in the one who brings peace, Jesus Christ. Apostle John said, but all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, he gave them rights to be children of God. That sounds like favor to me. Those who God favors, his children, those who believe in his name, he says, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Those who have accepted that spiritual peace that God has made with humanity through the offering of himself in completeness in Jesus Christ, those are the ones he favors. Those are the ones who receive the peace. And for everyone that receives that peace, God is glorified. And you see how this hymn continues to replicate itself. God is glorified. He sent Jesus. He brings peace. Those who receive the peace then glorify God in the highest of heavens who has brought the peace, who received the peace, who are now those that he favors, who glorify God. And I could go on and on forever. So the shortest song in all of the nativity story now has become the longest song because it's on repetition. I know that some of you have had your kids that have put the most annoying song ever on repeat. This is the most, this is the most glorifying song. This is the most uplifting. This is the most perfect of songs that could ever be placed on repeat. And it repeats over and over because God is perfectly glorified, the angels exclaim in their short song, through the flawlessness of his son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us peace through Christ to all who receive Christ through faith. Does this little short song, does it amplify a little bit the message that the angels were singing. We often rush through those two lines and we encapsulate them in some of our Christmas carols, but we don't think about the depth and the implication of this song that the angels sing as a choir hosts of heaven. God's glorified through his son, Jesus Christ. It's the most perfect way that God could glorify himself in the heavens and on earth. And maybe even studying this song just in this short amount of time can change our perception of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. That yes, he was a gift for us and he continues to be a gift for us. 
But the thing that we do whenever we, we say these words and we don't really think through them, we're constantly pointing at the benefactors at being us. We receive collateral blessing for Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ was the glory of God. It was his idea, his plan, his word, and all that Christ does and continues to do is for him. We are blessed that God has shown us grace, that God has shown us mercy to include us in that glorifying of himself. If that peace that I was speaking of and that the angels were heralding is something that you lack in your life, then I hope and pray that, that you submit yourself in faith to the one who can bring that peace that can end that internal conflict, that internal struggle, the wondering of, am I right with the Lord? The wondering of, am I good enough? Have I been good enough? The curiosity of, am I right with God? The angels proclaimed it and so did God. Just receive the peace by believing that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, the forgiver of sins. He's the peacemaker and the peace giver. If that's something that you need to receive this morning, then I want to invite you to come and speak with me, speak with one of the elders. Let us pray with you let us tell you what it means to receive that peace of God. To be a part of that repetitious hymn in Luke chapter two of God being glorified through every soul that receives Christ in faith and accepts the peace that he's given you. And if this is something that you have already done in your life, I hope that this is a reflection through this hymn, through this song, that enriches the story and the truth of what happened that day that Jesus Christ was born. It wasn't just a baby. It wasn't just a fancy story that we find in Scripture it wasn't just something for us to look at and, and to think that, look what God did for me. Let's praise God for making us children of God as collateral blessings for glorifying himself by giving of himself in Jesus Christ, walking with us, knowing us, speaking with us, expounding on God's word and his truth. Not just then, but forever by his spirit. Thank him for not allowing us and not letting us constantly wonder what is this God like? What does he think? What does he want? That's why he gave Jesus. We know what he's like. 
We know what he wants. We know what he gives. And we praise him for that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, Lord, that you saw fit to, in the most perfect way, glorify yourself by giving yourself in fullness and wholeness in your son, Jesus Christ, encapsulating your beauty, your holiness, your righteousness, your grace and truth, your goodness, your mastery in the son, Jesus Christ. Lord, and because of that, we read and we know that you glorified yourself in doing so. But in the midst of that, Lord, you brought the presence of God right to our human space. And you've made you, our God, accessible where we can speak with you and we can have a relationship with you and we can receive the peace of God through your son, Jesus Christ. So many things, Lord, innumerable to, to, to fathom and to speak of what you have done through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that as we reflect on this Christmas, the incarnation of the Son of God. Lord, I pray that we also give you glory, that we give you praise, that we give you worship just as the angels did. Lord, and that we continue to receive and to recognize the peace that you have given us through him and therefore give you praise and glory repetitively all the days of our life with every breath that we have. We love you, Father, and may this message be one not only that we embody in our own hearts and souls, but that we are compelled to share and to spread with the world around us. In Christ I pray, amen.